0: Hey everyone, and welcome to The Unconventional Podcast. It's actually episode nine. How is it episode nine? My guest today is a lady by the name of Sarah Morgan. Now Sarah helps businesses and individuals rise above toxic cultural practices. A lady after my own heart, that is for sure. So Sarah, a warm, warm welcome to The Unconventional Podcast. Tell us a little bit about you, what you do, and the inspiration behind it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. thanks, Andy, and thanks for the invite to to be here. it's It's lovely to to chat. So my background, I spent about twenty five years in technology operations um, across quite a wide range of industries, um, and then more laterally in in customer operations, in in quite senior roles. And I loved my work and I loved working with my teams. Um, I happened across many, many bad bosses um, and many toxic cultures uh, throughout my working life and got to the point where I realized I was getting into more senior roles, spending more time in the boardroom talking strategy and less time with people talking development, but also had a couple of really deeply worrying experiences in terms of corporate toxicity. And it just really led me to feel that what I wanted to do was help people, whether they were individuals struggling with tricky situations at work, to build their resilience, to build their capability of managing that and and to stand up against um, whether it was pure bullying in the workplace or just corporate nastiness, mm. or businesses who wanted to do better. Either businesses who were going into scaling up and realising that they didn't have the The leadership capabilities to ensure they didn't fall into any of those traps or organisations that had scaled and realised that they had some toxic traits that were starting to come out and they wanted to to dismantle that. So I'm really passionate about individual resilience and the ability to be a standard upper, if that's a word, um, but also for organisations to recognise that by treating their employees really well, it's good for their bottom line and they do better as a business as well. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah, good for people and, and good for business. So that's my, my passion, really.
0: Why do you think that businesses don't seem to make that connection between people first and that, uh, that drives everything else? Why, why, why do you think so many business owners haven't, even now in 2022, still haven't made that connection?
1: trust and fear i think um i believe that too many leaders well actually there's two sides to it so firstly a lot of leaders struggle to trust their people they have built something it's their baby it's their it's their thing and it's really hard to let go and trust that other people will treat it with the the respect and that other people will put the the hours and the time in and if they're not able to let go of control and to appropriately motivate their people, people then will give less. And they almost they feel like it's proving them right, um, rather than recognising that they need to lean into that and and kind of what was the the Susan David book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, mm-hmm. You know, let go, empower your people, give them the autonomy that they need to be able to do a brilliant job and trust that they will. And if you've hired the right people and you've motivated them, they'll do it. But there's there's lots of little steps in that that, that can go wrong. And then you end up with somebody who is demotivated and therefore isn't doing it well. And rather than leaning into that and understanding why, what's going on, what's, what's the problem, a kind of grasp back control, get more dictatorial command and control um, and and start treating people like children and mm. and then you, you you're you're on a bad road then
0: do you do you think some of it comes from the fact that as a business owner, you've kind of gone into that 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 world thinking that you know best um and and perhaps no one's ever perhaps no one's ever challenged you and said, actually, you don't know best? either out of fear or just because you're not a very challengeable person. And then they they kind of can't tune into the fact that actually, the people that you've surrounded yourself with can probably do these key things better than you can. Um, do you think there's a lot of ego in there?
1: In some cases, absolutely. And there's There's a difference between somebody being technically brilliant at the thing that they do and the the therefore the the whether it's the product or the purpose of the organization and having the leadership capabilities. So some technologists are awful leaders because they're just they're not built that way. Um and nobody can be brilliant at everything. So as an organization scales as you say, it's that ego aspect of, but it's my business and I can do everything, to then actually this sales and marketing person can do that better than I can. That operations lead can do it better than I can. That customer success manager can do that better than I can. Because when you start out, you do everything. Now, I started out knowing full well that sales and marketing is my absolute um, it's my my Achilles heel, and as soon as I'm able to outsource and offload that, I shall because it's not my my special source. But there's a self awareness and a a um, humility, I guess, in that that not every leader or not every um, entrepreneur is going to have.
0: It was interesting when I was a when I was a manager, and I spent from 22 to 20. Uh, well, just recently in management, so 20 years, almost 20 years. And when I first got thrown into it, it was very much a go and sink or swim. Um, and I was I, I had, I was in retail, in electrical retail in Comet, which was a tough gig, um, back in the kind of early noughties, 2002. And I had people in there that were in their thirties, forties, fifties, and there's me, this 22-year-old kid coming in that's been told to go and run the store, make it more money. And I, I I was a, a rabbit in headlights um, for a long time. But I realized very quickly that these people were my allies. And I don't know what it was. It was obviously something in me. And I wasn't great at everything, don't get me wrong. There were lots of things that I wasn't good at. But I realized very quick that these people, if I, if I use them as allies and I empower them to do the things that either I don't want to do or that I can't do, we are going to make more money, and and I I lost that ego very quickly. And I'm not saying it, it didn't come back at times throughout my career because I think you you fluctuate between having it and not, um, depending on how you're feeling in yourself. But but I did very quickly utilize the strengths and skills of the people around me to get the job done, um, even at such a young age. That kind of and that's probably why I was as successful as I was in those roles. Um, but like you, I saw some toxic cultures. In your, What's your definition? Because it is your expertise and it's what you do. What is your definition of a toxic culture? What should people look for?
1: So I think the first thing, the thing that becomes quite apparent quite quickly is um, clickiness and, you know, kind of side conversations and side groups the inability to speak up in a meeting and the very swift um gossip when you step out of the doors after the meeting mm. um so i don't think that a toxic culture is necessarily or only the absence of psychological safety but where you're unable to speak your mind within a meeting but as soon as the doors close everyone's like shh, 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 shh. there's mm. a real there's a toxicity around that the um the real uh, push from the management that you must toe the party line without any opportunity to question or um debate those decisions and any dissenting voices being per- perceived as being troublemakers or difficult rather than an acknowledgement that having a debate around the topic means everyone has a better understanding and then even if you don't agree with the decision, you can get behind it because at least your voice has been heard and you know that the decision's been made for the right reason. Mm. So it's that uh, ability to open dialogue, the ability for everyone to be included. And then there's a very obvious um, toxicity around, you know, active bullying, um, racism, homophobia, um, whatever else it might be, sexism, Um you know, they're very obvious and very, very apparent. If you look at Brewdog as an example, I think that's ex- an excellent example where you've got the very open toxicity around that sexism and um, um, and harassment almost that was, that started to come out now, but also underlying that, the um, Squashing of any dissenting voices, mm. the hounding out of the organisation of anyone who is prepared to stand up and go. Well, are we sure about that? Can we disagree? Can we debate that topic first? Mm. Um, and then, obviously, the, the the non-apology that came out against the the letter from the um, punks with purpose. Mm. Um, so it's those types of markers that that yeah. will show.
0: So, do you think, based on everything you've just said? Do you think there's an argument that, and, and and again, this could come across as as ageist, I, I, I guess, but when I was that young manager at 22, I worked with a lot of other young managers that got promoted within the retail sector and just kind of thrown in. And I feel like I, I had an element of luck And it could have gone very differently if I'd had certain situations to deal with that I just wasn't equipped to deal with because I just didn't have the life experience. In the modern day where there's so many young entrepreneurs starting businesses because they've got that creative mind, they've now got the outlet they need in in social media and the digital side of things. Do you think there's an argument that sometimes people just don't have the life experience to actually build a business at the rate that they're trying to build it?
1: Oh, that is an excellent question. And I don't know whether it's life experience or whether it's self-awareness. And they may coincide, as in, you know, we as we get older, we make mistakes, we trip up, we realise that we don't actually know it all and therefore the self-awareness comes hand Mm -hmm. in hand. That said, I've come across some people who are, astoundingly self-aware and humble even at a much younger age so i don't know whether it's an age thing or whether it's a um a self-awareness and a an emotional intelligence aspect um i also think that kids these days are much more prepared to stick their hand up and ask for help so I think somebody setting up a business 15, 20 years ago or somebody taking on a leadership role, or managerial role um, 15, 20 years ago might have struggled to say I could do, use some help. I could work with a coach. Is there some some training and development that I can access? Are there people around me within my network that I can lean upon? Are there mentors that I can leverage to enable me to be the best that I can be. I don't think that was even necessarily kind of um, uh, something that was in people's awareness and certainly wasn't in the vernacular in the way that it is now. And again, it might be that there's a, um, a an alignment between people who are self-aware enough and have the emotional intelligence and recognize that they can access that assistance mm-hmm. to, to lead to a much better outcome and a much more rounded outcome um, than somebody who is, i you know, I've, I've got all of the ideas, and know everything, and I'm just going to get it done. And maybe they're the ones that, that tend to fall by the wayside more quickly.
0: Yeah. I guess if we link that to um, the neurodiversity, which you and I, for various reasons, are are, are, are very close to, you talked about kids are, um, are much more inclined to put their hand up. Um, I know that my son, who's autistic, he will ask in a room full of people that perhaps wouldn't ask the obvious question or a question that's a little bit crazy or a little bit out there because he doesn't necessarily have that thing inside him that says someone might think this is stupid so I'm not going to ask it. Um, which is a good thing I think that he doesn't have that fear of I'm going to ask this regardless of the consequence or regardless of the judgment. Do you, do you, do you think that because 20 years ago, there wasn't the awareness around autism, ADHD, a lot of the things that you and I are going to discuss as this podcast goes on, that that played a part and that there was probably a lot of naivety around the different mindsets and the different way people process and consume information and it was kind of just like a one size fits all and if you don't fit in this box, you're out type situation
1: without a doubt and i think that recognition of diverse thinking and diversity of minds is such a, a an incredible addition and and boon to any organization to recognize that bringing in people um with neurodiversities will expand their creativity expand their thinking and the fact that people aren't hmm, I don't know whether it's that people aren't or more people feel empowered to be their true selves and to be their authentic selves in in the office or in in a remote office. Um, But it's almost... uh, What I worry about, I think, is that there's there's almost this um, chasm between the organisations that are open to and aware of and make allowances for neurodiversity... And they're the ones that almost need at least because they're already open and they're already thinking in in broader ways to the organisation where the entrepreneur recruits only miniature versions of themselves that think and do in exactly the same way. And, and see group think as a positive because there's no dissenting voices because everyone just thinks in exactly the same way. So it's how do we enable the organisations that aren't open to that that would never that almost have recruitment practices that would exclude autistic people or people who are on the spectrum in any way shape or form because they're so rigid in how they they onboard mm-hmm. and how they they recruit and that's what a challenge I have in my coaching as well it's like the people who come to me the people who need me least mm-hmm. And you know, it's. I want to talk to your boss, not you. I want to yeah, get into, yeah. you know, it's that. How do we enable organisations that are closed to that thinking mm-hmm. um, to 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 open their minds to that diversity, yeah. and to enable, you know, the person who doesn't have the social filters to ask the question that gets everyone to go, oh gosh, we hadn't thought of that. That's brilliant. Yeah. Rather than you know, please shut up and sit in the corner, which is is what would have happened otherwise.
0: Do you think that because I often wonder if I hadn't um had the personal life experiences that I've had over the last 10 years since we had children and then we uh, found out about Jake and and all of the 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 differences in him versus say what you would call a run of the mill child whatever that is anymore and then the 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 way that the way that life has kind of taken us in that in that different direction maybe I wouldn't have been so open to people telling me about stuff. So I I guess, do you feel like for some people, it almost takes a personal experience of it to make them see another way?
1: Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. And I think, again, everything's a spectrum, right? You've got the people who are so close-minded and so fearful of anything that doesn't look and sound like them. Um, But they're also liable to be somebody who, when faced with that, would squash their child to try and fit them into a neurotypical box Mm -hmm. through to the people who are, you know, fully open, you know, very neuro, neurodiverse themselves, really open to thinking and doing things in a different way and harnessing the creativity and the passion that often comes with the neurodiversity. Mm. So it's that, you know, where where's that middle ground where people can be exposed to and aware of those differences and start to recognise the advantages of them, um, which is one of the reasons why I, I'm so keen to shout it from the rooftops that, you know, neurodiversity isn't... Um, only the stimming, full-on meltdown behaviours. There is a huge benefit of, of harnessing the the, the the abilities of people who are neurodiverse. Mm. Um, and we're had- really out by not doing that.
0: Yeah. I had someone on uh, a few weeks back and we were talking about the benefits of neurodiverse people in business from a financial perspective. Because I think it's very easy for me to go on social media and talk about autism and talk about how amazing it is and and to share videos of Jake and the things he does and stuff like that. But from a business owner perspective who only thinks about the bottom line, that's just all fluff. There's no actual tangible evidence there to suggest that hiring neurodiverse is actually going to make him any more money or her any more money. But I had someone on a few weeks ago that was actually in within their role they were evidencing the increase in performance of the company the increase in staff retention by employing neurodiverse in key roles not ev- not everyone is cut out for every role everyone has a skill set whether you're neurotypical or neurodiverse everyone has a skill set but there are specific roles that are absolutely tailor-made for a neurodiverse person of of uh, some description, because they're all different, but they're, they're not being given the opportunities because the natural default for a lot of uneducated business owners is, this is going to be more hard work than I'm willing to put in with no tangible difference to my revenue. Um, so do you think that anyone trying to uh, coach and develop and educate business owners on on the kind of benefits of neurodiverse almost has to go down that here's the proof that actually this can make you more money route. I
1: don't think that they have to, but I think it's a good way of getting a recognition for those that are less open to it in the first instance. So talking about the strengths, you know, so somebody who has... Um, has or is, depending on on the way that you look at it, ADHD. Um, you know, looking at their creativity, their passion, their ability to hyper focus when they're super engaged by something, rather than looking at their disorganization, forgetfulness, and and sensitivity to criticism. So recognize, you know, they're probably going to be brilliant in a in a marketing role. You wouldn't make them a, a, an executive assistant for example. Um, so it's that, you know, um, recognising those benefits and talking about the benefits and helping people recognise that the, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, the, the adjustments that need to be made to accommodate somebody with neurodiversity is smaller than the benefit if you lean into their strengths and allow them to lean into their strengths. Uh, And I think increasingly businesses are becoming flexible, whether that's around the hours that people work. And, you know, coder who does their best work from 9 p.m. till four in the morning, well, let them work then. It doesn't matter that they're not doing their coding between nine and five to, you know, finding ways of scaffolding um, the organizational skills needed. For somebody who is adhd to enable them to to be creative and hyper focus
0: yeah um. did you know that the unconventional brand has three arms the podcast you're listening to right now unconventional apparel where a percentage of the profits go to the national autistic society and most recently think unconventional a social media company with busy business owners and CEOs in mind, putting your social media presence on the social media map. I want to, uh, if I can, flip the conversation to ADHD. Um, This is something, this is a journey that you are on, personally. I haven't made this public through the, the the kind of pages of LinkedIn, but it's also a journey that I've explored with myself, um, as well as autism. And I haven't taken the plunge yet to get as perhaps as far as, as you have, but it's definitely something that I've paid very close attention to. What I really want to know, and I think probably people listening to the podcast would like to know is, what is it? At the the later stage of life, and you know, you and I aren't children anymore. We, we've kind of grown up. We've, as you said to me before we came on air, you've been in society for all of these years, just getting on to to one extent or another. What is it that made you say, "I'm going to go down this road"? I think I need to to speak to someone and actually get some questions answered.
1: Yeah, sure so um leaving the structure of corporate life to set up my own business um highlighted some of my challenges i guess particularly around organization and having the the structures working to deadlines where in a corporate role I knew I had that meeting on Wednesday afternoon I had to have all of that prepped and and everything was much more structured and straightforward uh whereas when I started working for myself suddenly everything was so much harder throughout my life I have um berated myself for being lazy and demotivated and untidy and messy um and I am particularly um I particularly struggle with putting off calls that I know that I need to make that are going to be difficult. And I have used that with uh, as a stick with which to beat myself for many, many years. So as I've gone through my coaching and, and anybody who sets up in business, it's a massive mirror on yourself anyway, but particularly working as a coach, there's a massive amount of self-discovery that has to happen if you're going to be a, a decent coach at least. Um, so I started to unpick all of this and think, well, why am I the way I am? And why am I, why is my inner critic out of control when I'm talking to people about their own inner critic? Um, and I was talking also about my daughter who is dyslexic and displays some challenging traits. And I was starting to look at ADHD for her. Um, and a friend of mine said to me, once you've got your diagnosis, hers will be more straightforward. And I was like, excuse me, what do you mean my diagnosis? And literally, it was like a thousand light bulbs went off. And I'm like, oh, and this and this and this. And th- of course. So I started doing some hyper-focused research, as is my want, again, another light bulb, um, and recognised so much of myself and the coping mechanisms and strategies that I've put in place for myself. And that ADHD overwhelm, that sitting on the sofa, unable to do the thousand things that I know I must do. Um, And the more I read and the more I researched, the more it simply made sense. I'm not actually a lazy troglodyte, but actually I am struggling with a, a neurodiversity. So I thought, right, I'm going to talk to my doctor and she will tell me not to be so stupid, that it's midlife crisis slash perimenopause slash COVID, whatever. Um so I spoke it through with my GP and having heard lots of stories of people who've struggled talking with their GP, their GP have turned them away because they've functioned and, and been successful, uh, my GP just said, Yep, absolutely classic. Yes, not a problem, straight in for a referral. Um and the, the sense of validation and vindication that I felt in that moment was immense. So even if nothing progresses from that point, and I don't know whether I need or want medication, but just to have a medical professional say, yes, these things that you are experiencing are due to a neurodiversity, not due to you just being a lazy bastard, Mm. was brilliant. It meant so much to me and has really helped me start to put the right steps in place to scaffold my um my being in the world and my my capability of running my business in a in a more uh effective way really lean into my strengths
0: what what would you say those those um strategies are for combating that the kind of areas that you perhaps said that you were struggling with before that
1: yeah so there's two two things one is the um i've done a lot of research now on the hunter farmer um context of of adhd and i can't remember the name of the um the scientist or the 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 guy who did who did the research and wrote the book but basically was saying people who have adhd traits or who have adhd or are adhd tended to from a genealogical point of view will have come from hunters so you need to be able to focus for a reasonable amount of time on hunting that wildebeest and bring it down and then afterwards, you get to, to lounge around and to recover and recoup. But you need to be absolutely indistractable when you're in that hyper focus. And then once that's done, you can, can kind of do what you want. Whereas people who are normal, neurotypical, are more farmers. So you're constantly, you've got to do the same thing every day. You've got to have a process. You've got to be able to do those things and not get distracted because you've got things that you've got to get done. So it's about a different way of working. So what I've done is I've um, diarised my energy and when I'm comfortable and, and in a, a lazy mode, I don't like using the word lazy, but I can't think of a different way of describing it, um, recouping my my energy. And I, so because I'm working for myself, I can manage my diary largely along those lines so when i'm in a role in a, in a space where i've got that hyper focus i go off and do my research on the next set of workshop topics on my blogging um and do that sort of work and then when i'm in a more chill space i yeah I, and, and basically plan the different types of work for the different points in time I'm not yet in the position where I'm making enough, but I know straight away what I'm going to outsource to somebody else in terms of the organisation, having a VA, being able to um, offload the tasks that just don't come naturally to me and that cause me a lot of stress. And then the other aspect of ADHD, which for me was a clincher, is um, rejection, rejection, sensitivity. Um, and. Simply knowing that that is a thing has helped me. So, if somebody doesn't reply, or if I'm struggling to reply, or there's a a situation that's occurred that I could have taken, and I do take very personally, and I really worry that I've done all of these things wrong, I'm much better able to take a step back and recognize it for what it is, which Mm -hmm. is my people pleasing desire and my rejection sensitivity blowing this thing out of proportion and that it's not actually about me, and to be able to own my part in what's happening and take the one step that moves us in the right direction, rather than cycling in a, I'm a dreadful human being, um, because I missed a call um, from someone and didn't reply to them within three hours or whatever standards I've set for myself. Yeah. So that, that understanding of it has helped take the sting out of it in some ways.
0: It's so interesting because so much of what you're saying is an education for me because, like I said, you're, you're a lot further along the process than, than I am. I wanted to know if something resonated with you. <clears throat> I've, I've always struggled with... This is why I struggled in employment. And, and the only thing I miss about retail is that I only ever worked two or three days in a row. And then you would have a day off. Now, granted, you would never get your weekends but you I never did 5 days in a row in retail with within an office environment which I then spent the next 11 years in in marketing I the one thing I struggled with was being in the same place at the same desk 5 days a week like it was it was torture for me if I'm honest and doing what I do now is perfect because I can have lots of mini breaks during the day and I can flip between jobs. So if I've got five or six things I need to accomplish in a day, I will rarely do all of it, like I will rarely go right, job one, that's three hours, I'll block that out for three hours and I'll get that done, then I'll move on to job two. I will literally flip between all five jobs, so they'll all get done at the end by the end of the day, but I'll do them in sections to keep my brain from basically going numb and does that does that resonate? Does that sound familiar?
1: It does. And because I am so um, distractible, I also have to force myself to not flit. So I use my phone and, and um, I have alarms on my phone constantly um, to either... Tell me that I need to stop to go on to do the next thing because I'll get into that hyper focus and suddenly 10 hours has gone by and no one's had dinner. Or to tell me I can't stop until the alarm goes off because I have to just get this thing done that I'm finding really heavy and burdensome. But if I don't get it done, there's going to be a consequence. Mm. So I've kind of taken there's a thing called the Pomodoro technique um which I don't think is specifically around ADHD or or neurodiversity but is essentially saying if you've got this thing that's really big and cumbersome and and overwhelming only do 20 minutes you you set your alarm you only have to make a start do 20 minutes and at the end of the 20 minutes you can either turn it off and do something else or actually you've got over that inertia and you're into it and you can crack on so I use that concept but both from a I've got to get something done. And also I can snap out of it. Um, If anyone looks at my phone, I've got alarms set, you know, 20 minutes here, 40 minutes there and an hour and a half there because I just have to. Otherwise I get to the end of the day and I've done I don't know whether swearing's loud, but I've done the square root of fuck all because I've done a tiny bit of everything and chased my tail all day and that absolutely grinds my gears because I'm so disappointed with myself because I've wasted my energy doing a little bit of everything and a lot of nothing so I've had to I've had to compartmentalize but then into that allow myself two hours to sit around and do nothing and contemplate because that that Positive procrastination also helps your subconscious work through problems or or come up with new ideas as well.
0: Yeah, I I find it fascinating that um, you've kind of you talked about medication and actually it was interesting. um, There's a guy on LinkedIn called Mark Gaseford. I don't know if you if you follow Mark or you've ever heard of Mark. He's the founder of Red Sprout, um, Red Sprout Digital or Red Sprout Media, one of the two. They're a, a, a media company. He used to be in recruitment for many years. And when he was about 50, maybe 52, he announced on LinkedIn that he was ADHD. And it, that was the thing that sparked my initial interest in the process that he took. Because a lot of what he was talking about really resonated with me in terms of where he struggles And he went down the road of medication after he'd been diagnosed and I think he took it for about a week and then came off it because he said all of the things that made him great were suppressed under the medication. So although he he had to fight the things that he was challenging with and and find coping mechanisms as you've done. He he would rather do that than suppress the things that that made him who he was and that made him successful in recruitment and now successful in media. Would would you would you kind of agree with that? Is that kind of your take on it?
1: A hundred percent. And I'm I guess I'm lucky in that my ADHD isn't extreme. You know, I am able to function. I have been able to hold down a job and and get to a senior level. I have been able to function and I recognise that for some medication is absolutely important. For me, I think it is that being able to lean into the superpowers that my ADHD brings and find ways of minimising the disbenefits. Apparently, disbenefits isn't a word. I think it is.
0: (laughs) It definitely is now.
1: Yeah. um, Because it is a superpower. Being able to hyper focus in the way that I can, being able to be as creative and passionate as I am. I don't want to lose that. I'd like to not have the absolutely compelling urge to know how tall Jesus was at 2.30 in the morning. That's not the best part of ADHD. Five foot seven, by the way. Yeah. but actually, I don't want to lose all of the brilliant things that that my neurodiversity does bring to me and being able to role model that actually it's it can be a superpower and you can leverage it to be brilliant in your own way. Mm. There are times when I'm really struggling with it, where I kind of wish that I could be I could be normal. But as you said earlier, who's normal? What is normal? Um, and if that means losing that passion and creativity and and make you know the sociability that I think is part of it the ability to just gabble away um is yeah I wouldn't want to lose that
0: no I read a stat a while ago that said one in seven people is neurodiverse but I don't think that's one in there certainly isn't one in seven people diagnosed I think that's one in seven either believes they are or through different conversations that people have had with them have said you're definitely this or, or you're definitely showing signs of this um, and I think it, it, it as you say who's normal these days it comes down to an awareness and I think when you look at social media especially LinkedIn over the last couple of years there's been so many people come out and say I'm ADHD, or I'm autistic, or what you know, whatever else, and and been brave enough to to embrace that and come out. And it's generally business owners because I think there is still a stigma attached to it that if you work in a, a normal environment as an employee, there's a fear that if you go to your employer and say this is now the case that I've been and had this done, or even before you even enter into the route, but you maybe you've got thoughts about doing it. There is a fear attached, isn't there? Because you will be judged differently. Perhaps you won't be put forward for promotions or, again, because of a, a lack of knowledge and naivety. So, you know, would you agree with that? Have you seen that?
1: Yeah, without a doubt. There is a a stigma attached, whether that's neurodiversity, mental health or, or a whole range of things. There is still a really deep stigma you know, if somebody is um, admitting that they have or, or are ADHD, there's an assumption, therefore, that they're going to be um, unreliable, that they're going to be disorganised, that they're going to be whatever. If somebody um, has autism, are they going to be disruptive and and difficult and, and um, uncomfortable in, in some way, shape or form? And we have to break those stigmas. Mm. Um, because organisations are, uh, firstly, not supporting the people who already have those neurodiversities that are already within their organisation, flying under the radar, mm. um, and secondly, they're they're missing out on the ability to to work with those people. I've just done a series of workshops for an IT services organisation, and one of the the aspects of that was for them to to look at an aspect of diversity and inclusion within the business and how they could improve it. And one of them looked at um, recruitment of neurodiversity and discovered that in the US, and I suspect it's not vastly different here, 80% of autistic people are unemployed. 80%! It's Terrifying and awfully sad that, that businesses are missing out on the opportunity to harness that immense creativity and focus. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and and all of the the different different thinking and different ideas that would come from from working with people who are neurodiverse.
0: I think people listening to that stat, maybe would jump to the conclusion that because I've seen autistic people that are and let's use the word extremely autistic. That the scale is vast. You will offend someone somewhere by using the wrong terminology for where you sit on the, the autism scale. but I've been in situations my, my son went to a specialist preschool doesn't go to a specialist school, he goes to mainstream, but his preschool was a specialist preschool and there were children in that setting that were autistic and they were night and day uh, different from from Jake in the sense that they just simply couldn't function um without constant support and i think possibly people will look at that stat and say well that's the 80% but that's bollocks because it, that most of that 80% are probably children like my son who are quite direct quite blunt which a lot of business owners don't like because they don't like being challenged um And that just simply won't fit a mould. And they can tell that in an interview process, this person's not going to fit here. So they get rejected.
1: Yeah. If they even get to interview. So um, I was reading, there was an article on LinkedIn about Costa Coffee um, and the online application process. And it talked about how you would interact with a manager, how you'd interact with a colleague and how you'd interact with a customer. Um, and the person um, was talking about, I think it was their son or their daughter, their daughter, I think, who'd applied and essentially been unable to fill this out because this person was saying, but it, it depends, like just because they're called a manager doesn't like, are they are they this or are they that? I can't, physically can't fill out the form because as an autistic person or a person with autism, my, my thinking doesn't work that way and I physically can't fill the form out. Mm. So, you know, they're, they're missing out on potentially the best barista they've ever seen um, mm. because they've they've literally um, filtered them out through mm. that recruitment process. Mm.
0: The, the company that I worked at very briefly before I, I launched Think Unconventional was um, an American company. Funnily, we've just been talking about Americans and the the level of uh, unemployment in autistic people. And I put out a couple of posts on LinkedIn while I was there because we were on a recruitment drive. And I had, because of my LinkedIn network, I had quite a few people DM me and say we would be interested. Um, And a couple of the guys were actually autistic because obviously a big part of my community is neurodiverse. And um, they went through the application process, and we were having a perfectly nice conversation on, on uh, LinkedIn. Part of the application process at this company was that every applicant had to do a five-minute video, tell me about you. Now, I could do that all day long. In fact, I thrive on it. I put me in front of a camera, and I'm in my element. But that's me. Odessa, for example, who you know, hates video. She comes across, in certain circles, she's the most confident person on the planet. We went to a networking event recently. No, we didn't. We went to the autism show at the XL in London. I am not one for just walking up to randoms and talking about whatever. It's not really my thing. It makes me anxious, if I'm honest. She does it like as easy as breathing. Whereas put a camera in her face and she just can't deal. So we are all different. Does that mean that she cannot be a very good LinkedIn marketeer? No. So my challenge back to the company was, I don't think this process of having to have people um, do a video interview, like talking about themselves, I think we might be missing out on some talent here. And their argument against it was, yeah, but they need to get on zoom calls so at least we're weeding out the weak ones first um and i kind of said yeah but zoom calls are very different from someone putting a camera in your face and talking about themselves for five minutes that that's a really difficult thing to do for some people that doesn't mean they're not going to be great salespeople, and they just didn't get it so that's one of the reasons i don't work there anymore but have you seen that does that does that compute
1: it it does, and I think it, it comes back to the point I was making earlier about the people who need the the neurodiverse people within the organisation to expand their diversity of thinking, or the very organisations that aren't open to it in the first place. Um, it's like no, this is the box in which you must fit, and if you do not fit in this box, then computer says no, and it's heartbreaking. But ultimately they're not an organization who would enable somebody with neurodiversity to thrive anyway. So, you know, maybe maybe there's an argument that says it's a good thing that they do that because they'd be awful to work for from a neurodiversity point of view anyway. They're the organization that I'd love to get into and and really pull on those threads and get them to kind of recognize how much they're they're missing out on by by not having that openness.
0: Um. Sarah, do you think, and and I'm conscious of time because amazingly we've almost hit an hour, which is ridiculous. I've clicked my fingers and we've been an hour. Um, Do you think that there is an argument though that the education, for it to take effect and for it to, to work, it has to run through the entire business because, and what I mean by that is, even if it comes from top down, and this comes back to your toxic culture element, if you've got people within that business that are fairly senior, that are generally left alone to do their job, and they don't buy in to the message of inclusivity, accessibility, they can do a hell of a lot of damage, even though they're not at the top, because they're not necessarily being monitored and managed and and, and buying in. And so... It, it kind of has to come through the whole company or it or it will drop or it will fall down, won't it?
1: 100%. And I think that's true whether it's about neurodiversity, diversity inclusion generally, or any cultural aspect. Top-down is not enough. Bottom-up is not enough. It has to run right the way through. And it has to be measurable and actionable. If an organisation wants to genuinely make a change in to, in how they work, um and the culture within the organization it has to run right the way through and having solid metrics and measurements that show the benefit of doing it and how well they're doing it mm. um is the only way of making it stick um the road to hell is paved with good intentions and you know the the senior team can sit around saying yes we we have this but unless it's actually happening on the ground it means nothing.
0: Sarah this has been um uh, an enlightening conversation uh, I was so keen to have you on mainly because of of what you do and the, and the connection you have with neurodiversity um I think that's why people listen to the podcast and I think there's been some some real key takeaways in there particularly around ADHD that have certainly helped me and and hopefully will will help the people listening as well so thank you very much for giving up your time
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's been brilliant, and as you say, I don't know how we've we've managed to to, to chat for an hour when it's felt like about twelve minutes. So yeah,
0: I mean, I did have a coughing fit halfway through and shut windows and do other things, but we'll cut that out. We'll cut that out.
1: Good, good. Yeah. No, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Andy. Thank you, and it's been yeah, lovely to get to know you properly rather than just seeing your your stuff on LinkedIn. So
0: yeah, and you probably see a lot of that because I'm fairly regular. It, that's that's an understatement.
1: Yeah. I'm inconsistent, funnily enough.
0: <laughs> well, you have—you've obviously mentioned about when the time comes, you want to outsource your marketing. So now that we know each other, um, hopefully they'll be—they'll uh, be—I'll be front of mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, Andy. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day.
0: Thank you very much, Sarah.